Good afternoon and welcome to the Healthy Indoors live show. I'm your host, Bob Krell, founder and publisher of Healthy Indoors magazine. And thanks again for joining us uh, this fine Thursday. I think I said that exact same intro last week. Uh, that's what happens when you go extemporaneous. Anyway, great to have you here. Um, today's topic, uh, for those of you who have actually taken a look at the title, is a continuation of a discussion we started back, I believe, on June 17th. We had uh, the subjective uh, science uh, of mold sampling. And that was one where we actually let the entire studio audience in and we just kind of had a roundtable discussion which was fantastic uh one of the most engaged uh, shows we've had in a while so we're going to continue that part two because unfortunately 60 minutes came up on us way too freaking quick so um with that we're going to um talk about uh the same topic but some other parts in that topic so with us today uh our guest we actually brought a guest on this time so it's not just me babbling on the front end we brought uh scott armor who is a uh, environmental health science, science. consultant. I got it straight. <laughs> Environmental Health Science Consultant uh, from Armor Applied Sciences in Cincinnati, Ohio. Hi, Scott. Hey, how are you? Good to see you guys. Uh, you know what? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. It's, uh, you know, it's Thursday. <laughs> nothing, wrong, nothing wrong with that. So, um, hey, so welcome. Uh, you, were, you were part of that discussion when we had the group discussion uh, a few weeks back. And uh, yeah, we continued the discussion offline after the fact, of course, because <laughs> so it, it was pretty interesting stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, you, I, I think we come from a similar place on, you know, the fact that there's some maybe questionable or at least uh, things that could be done better as far as the sampling methodologies and what we do, you know, just, the, just how people utilize sampling in this industry, right? I think that's a great summary, you know, it, it, how, how to the point, right? And all of the different groups and committees over many, many, you know, you and I now are counting decades, right? We're like, oh, it's not just eight years or nine years ago. We get to say decade or two. <laughs> it's, it's millennia. <laughs> yeah. Well, it does, right? And I think I even mentioned it last time, you know, we go back to the, what's the history of indoor air quality and, and how do we measure, I don't care what setting, we've mentioned before the industrial hygiene term, does that, does that confuse people because it says industrial, right? But we, but industrial hygienists, they, they measure the indoor environment and continue to measure the in, indoor environment. And we learned some very basic things from them, uh, but basic, but important and scientific and technical. And they really haven't changed. You know, the sampling is still done the same way, the intent. And we still see the same advice from the texts uh, from the 1980s when we had texts and, and the first monographs and the first information that was coming out there from really experienced people. And it hasn't changed that much for us, for the industry, for the mold tester, for the regular guy out there who's making a living. It, it, there's, a, there's a huge disconnect. You know, we have, we have two different things. We, you know, we we talked earlier and I think, uh, you know, it was funny, we shared war stories last time when we were on, you know, we, we do come from a similar place because we've seen a lot of egregious things happen to th this notion of indoor air sampling. And obviously many of us focus on mold and we see an expansion and a diversion from mold right now over the last three, four, five years uh, 
with regard to health. And that's why I said, hey, choose environmental health science as my label today. You know, this is my career, environmental health science, because health is what's driving it, right? It drove the mold, it drove sick building syndrome, and it's driving mold. And now it's driving this next thing called environmental acquired illness. You know, and, and I'm involved, as I mentioned, on several committees right now from several organizations that are all trying to wrap their head around when do you instruct and how do you instruct a professional to take a sample and that and that goes against what the vast majority are doing right what those who follow the texts are saying one thing those who are out there doing it for a, a typical li living so to speak are doing something different okay that, that was that was pretty diplomatically placed too so um yeah i mean <laughs> And, and, you know, I, I know we got into, you know, the discussion last time around, we got into, uh, you know, talking about how, you know, there's certain, a certain faction of the industry that's, you know, kind of like sample pump jockeys. And I know that's derogatory and everything, but I mean, there's some truth to it, right? You know, there's, there's people that just, just their whole consulting on the mold side is take, take some air samples, and then that's our consulting. And what are the results? You know, and they draw, they glean some conclusion from three or four uh, spore traps, and you know, and and that's their report, and that's scary. That that does that scares the heck out of me. That that here we are in 2021, and we're still having this conversation. I, I think that's the hardest part for me and for you and and some of our colleagues is that we're still having this conversation. That we couldn't. That every time we teach one group of a hundred people, a two more hundred show up that are taught something completely different. A part of that is the lack of control, uh, the lack of uh, regulation or some sort of, of limits on who can do what and what they can call themselves. Well, lack of agreed upon anything. I mean, there's there's really not a lot of consensus here and, and, and how you sampling, when you sampling, how you even sample, right? Well, I mean, there there is, but is there? <laughs> there's, okay, you have to divide it into groups, right? You take, take of people who are very educated about methodology. And I don't want to place emphasis on, oh, you're smarter or you're more educated, but there is a training and education and schooling that takes place in, the, in science, when you study science. And I don't care what field it is, sociology, environmental health, chemistry, biology, but when you're doing research and data collection, you're taught a, a very strict uh, set of rules and guidelines, so to speak, right? This is the method to achieve good data, to achieve good results. And if you don't get through that part in your schooling, in your education, it doesn't matter what you do because you're gonna have things that are just conclusions that are not valid. And I, I, I ask people all the time, and I've done this for a long time, you've seen me do it many times over many decades. <laughs> um, you know, if, if you want to challenge somebody about what they're doing in sampling, just start to open up the conversation with the words reliable and, and valid. And it, it, you will find immediately what they're doing because if they can't explain how their method was reliable and they can't explain how the method and the results were valid to answer the question, right? Then you'll find out where they stand. Um, you know, we, we spoke briefly about uh, the organizations that exist. And we've had over the years, you know, MOUs, Memorandums of Understandings, and we've had uh, transfer of individuals from one committee to another committee, one organization to another committee. So there is, you know, there is a history, kind of like a pedigree of those 
who participate in these these standards and guidelines and recommendations. Well, uh, pedigree or, or you know some some form of uh, de facto inbreeding, but okay, uh, I'll give you that. Yeah, it, it's 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 <laughs> inbreeding is such an ugly word. <laughs> Yeah, kind of, but you know, nonetheless, maybe somewhat appropriate. You know. Well, okay. So look at look at AIHA and ACGIH, and perhaps and ASTM. Right? There's a lot of crossover. We sooner or later, you know, it's it's not what is it six degrees of Kevin Bacon? It's two <laughs> degrees of Bob Crow. <laughs> right? If you think about it, if you don't know them, I do. If I right, don't right. know them, Pat. Patrick does if or Susan does right all of a sudden it's two three degrees we all sort of are aware of each other yeah there's not I'll I'll acknowledge that there's not a uh, there's not a lot of people really at the forefront of this industry right I mean there's I mean it's not like there's three or four but I mean I think it's hundreds you know not thousands that's for sure and it's it's a fairly small group right I remember the first time I went to an industrial hygiene conference um and watched Phil Mori give a presentation on, on mold. And I, I met members of the ACGIH bioaerosols committee, right? That was my entree into the industry. And I said, wow, these, these people have their act together. They're really, you know, learned and, and, and educated and knowledgeable. I want to be like them, right? They were my mentors. I got to know them. I could pick up the phone, talk to them, just like you did with, with your mentors. And that group stayed small, right? And back then I would say, oh, there was like a thousand people in the country who knew who were doing indoor air with regard to mold and health. And a hundred of them, 50 of them were at the top. And I said, oh, I wanna be one of those 100. I wanna be that good at my job. And I think now we have tens of thousands of people in the industry, but we still have 50 or a hundred at the top. And we don't have 10,000 people listening to them because there's another hundred who are teaching something completely different, passing yeah. on something different. That's an interesting, that's an interesting point. You're right. Um, and, and, you know, and, and it's funny that you, you bring up Phil Mori because uh, it's reminiscent 2004. I was, uh, I was actually invited to uh, present at their mold uh, thing they had in Orlando. Uh, it was the last time ACGH ever invited me to present on their stage uh, because the, you know, the whole diocese uh, or however you pronounce that uh, of, the committee was sitting there and I turned around during in front of a thousand people in the room and actually said, you know, you guys are all just kind of like an inbred family. You know that you keep re- cross citing each other on all your papers for the last 30 years. I go, somebody's got to come up with a new idea. And, uh, and I will say this is one of my, fo- I've, I've had a lot of experience, a lot of times I was spent time with Phil Murray, but I love that guy. And he belly laughed in his deep voice there. The rest of them were mortified that I said, it, and he let, I mean, he just like let out, because he's because like, and he just shook his head like yeah you did that didn't you <laughs> and i i wish i would have seen that because i could completely picture phil his attitude when he laughed like that because nobody else laughed, laughed. i want to i want to add that everybody else in the committee didn't la- laugh it was only phil right and and i great guy i knew him only a little you know and and i could but i knew him well enough that i could say yeah that would be him because he understood what was going on right he was you know, so technical and so scientific and so experienced, but he also got it. He got. He was a realist, though. He was real world. Yeah, really, that's what I mean. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And that I think that was like really super unique. I mean, he was. I mean, obviously, he was one of the pioneers of. You know, one of the people that we were still reading documents that he co-authored, and right. you know, and his guidance in the industry. But he, yeah, he was like, he was a, a PhD, but he was a PhD that also understood field work and he got on the field. I mean, I spent a time crawling under a building with him, 
you know, in the early 2000s, him in a Tyvek suit and a PAPR crawling alongside of me in a crawl space in a commercial building. And it's like, you don't get that from most people at that caliber. <laughs> and, and you're right. That's a good, that's a good example. And when I sat on a committee, we were, we were a small select committee up in Montreal and we were asked to, you know, we, we were labeled as world experts or something. And I was, I was very honored to, to be put on that very small committee. And Harriet Amon was there, and uh, uh, Dr. Yohanning, and Eckert Yohanning was there, and Phil and myself, and uh, two or three others, and I forget off the top of my head, back in 2014. And we published a document in 2015 from that meeting. Uh, it was actually, you know, a, a, what they called an audit, and there was an audience of 250 people there from public health and public schools for two days, and we reviewed a lot of their documents and talked about them and critiqued their method. And um, I, sorry, I kicked my thing and I shook. Um, you, you didn't shake my, shake my uh, camera though. I, that was at my end. <laughs> That was that was a funny reaction, by the way, because I was adjusting a camera here in this studio. And I kicked my table. <laughs> you kicked it all the way here to Syracuse. And he he taught. I, I will never forget the line he used, because here we are talking, you know, about schools and health and teachers complaints and, and kids getting sick and whether mold can go through concrete and all these like kind of technical things. And he goes, mold buildings have a memory. And so no matter how good you do your mold remediation, there's a great chance that your sampling, especially he was referring to air sampling, but any sampling is going to capture what was once there mm -hmm. because this building's going to hold on to it. You know, and the whole point of that audit, the, 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 the main context from the members, and we were, in, 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 think about this, you had Phil Moore, Yohannin, Amin, myself, a couple others. We ended up being in unanimous agreement that sampling is not how you enter a, an assessment for health of a building for the you know, health of the occupants in a building. It was an adjunct, it was much later in the process. And we were unanimous about this. And that's where he brought that up. He goes, you're gonna find these, you know, these false positives because of the memory of the building, right? Because it's gonna hold on to some, a few aspergillus spores off in a corner and you're just gonna happen to walk in that corner and sample them. It has nothing to do with health. It has nothing to do with the condition of the building. And I love that he used that phrase in memory. And I always pictured Phil kind of like what you just said, like in a hallway somewhere of a 12-story building that was being demolished for mold and him walking up this flight of stairs, taking samples and finding them, recording the memory of the building. I, it, yeah, I mean, that, and that's kind of how I, I remember him crawling down into this crawl space with me. It was this big uh, uh, assisted living uh, new structure. So it was like, couple hundred thousand square foot wood frame construction that had a significant water problem in the crawl space and it was moldy all the superstructure of the building was moldy it was just awful they hadn't even opened it yet and i was like i'll go down there you know <laughs> you know it's like you don't need to go no no i'll come down with you <laughs> and, he, and i'm like he's suiting up and i'm thinking oh good god <laughs> it's like he's gonna crawl down this ladder into this muddy crawl space it was like a world war one uh trench down there there was just water and mud and we're crawling on our bellies it was awful just awful. And, and that's what people do. And, you know, we, one of the things I think we need to head for, I'm going to throw this out there in the beginning, we can talk about it later or set up a different show. And I mentioned it earlier was that, um, you know, we need some sort of a new consensus in the industry. We need a new organization to represent all the organizations. 
whether it's ad hoc or semi-formal, I'm not sure, whether we all need to join together and create a, a, a consensus white paper. But you know, we have committee right now, I mean, think about it, I'm sitting on committees from three different organizations and the debate is nearly similar in all of them, right? It's whether it's post-remediation verification, assessment, writing protocols, uh, creating some sort of remediation, um, assessing health. And there's disconnect, right? If I have one concept that I'm a specialist at, and we'll talk about this in a minute, for example, the uh, S520 condition two, if I need to get that concept across to all three or four committees at different times, think of the amount of time I'm spending trying to educate people who come to those committees with no real concept of what that condition two is and when someone needs to know about it. That's a lot of, of re-education, not re-education, repeated education. Mm -hmm. And we need to somehow get together so that we exchange information rapidly, almost in real time, so that, for example, the schools committee talks to the S520 remediation committee, talks to the S530 assessment, talks to the ASTM uh, verification, right? That information should exchange hands super, almost in real time, because we don't want to keep contradicting or, com or, or either reinventing the wheel or contradicting each other because some of, some of us don't understand what the other concepts are. If only there was a space where people could all cross communicate. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had to do it. I just, you know, I can't, I can't stop myself sometimes. What, I'm not very well filtered that, either, as, as we mentioned we, in, in pre. What do you think we could call that? Story? Yeah, it's some kind of a community, a gathering. Anyway, um, I, I want to invite all of our uh, um, studio audience. You can turn your cams on if you'd like on uh, the virtual studio audience, uh, because we will start uh, briefly. We'll be getting into, uh, you know, kind of a round robin discussion here. Not not to cut you off, Scott. I want to continue on the points you're on. I just wanted to uh, let everybody know within a few minutes, we'll probably shift and start entertaining some comments. Um, yeah. Well, that I mean, was my, so that was my industry soapbox for a moment. I don't have an answer to that. I just know in my gut, we need to do that. We need to figure out how to get that going. Yeah, and I'm not sure that that's necessarily like there needs to be another organization. You know, I saw in the chat, Susan uh, chimed in there. Um, and by the way, Susan Valenti, our editor from Healthy Indoors is uh, in the chat for those of you in the uh, virtual audience. Uh, we also have chat on the community. If you're watching us over on the community side, you can chat over there and we can see that up on our studio monitors as well. Um, but. I, I'm not sure we need another organization, but we do need to have these different organizations not be operating completely in silos, right? Let, let's call it a collaboration. Right? Yeah, well, cross-pollination yeah, or whatever. Yeah, some, something like that. I mean, honestly, <laughs> if you've got three organizations all doing, uh, you know, working on standards for something or you know, standards or whatever, position papers, and they're all in similar topics and they're all working independently of each other, that doesn't seem really uh, an efficient way to do things. Well, especially if in the end, for example, whatever, say you have three standards being worked on and which, which so happens we do. Um, and one of them finishes first and they're ready to go. And, you know, because right, they started earlier and now they're ready to go to public review. They're not published yet, but they're ready to go to public review. It sounds and like the vaccines a, for, uh, for SARS-CoV. Yeah. And, and then we have a second committee and a third committee and they're all two or three steps behind each other, but they they, the second and third committee are going to discuss, debate, and try to figure out the same thing the first committee just solved, right? They, they spent two years at schools, well, more than that, but say the schools committee spent two years resolving an issue that maybe these other two committees will adopt immediately if we just knew about it. 
Instead, I've, I'm on an S530 committee to ICRC. I am fearful we're going to re-debate and the same thing that's been debated and concluded by another group. And we ought not to be wasting our time on that. And neither should they, right? Vice versa. It's a two-way, three-way street. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's no, where I mean, my concept comes from. Yeah, and I think it makes total sense. I think the practicality of it's difficult. I mean, at least for my 35 years in this industry, I've never seen everybody play well together in the sandbox for a prolonged period. That's just, and I'm not trying to be pessimistic or just, you know, there, there are a lot of factors that involve, you know, who's, who's going to take the lead on things, right? Yeah. Well, unfortunately, <laughs> you, know. you know, it's, um, we, we, we wanted to talk about Samley and that's kind of political and that's kind of, uh, yeah, let's get out of that. Let's get to the, let's get to the topic at hand, but that, but that was a good side discussion. That was important. I think, um, what did I say? What were the other thing? Oh, condition two. Condition two. Yeah. 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 Condition two. It's my, it's my new thing, right? It, it's not a new, it's not a new, but, but my, my use of it as an example, look at Pat grinning. No. Well, we'll define. Con First of all, define condition two for people that don't know what condition two is, because there might be some uh, some viewers here that are going, "What's condition one?" <laughs> <laughs> I, if I hadn't, if I wasn't, you know, if I hadn't read S five twenty, I wouldn't know. <laughs> well, let's put it this way: I just reviewed a project where there was a horrific, egregious recommendation to uh, fog a house to get rid of all the mold. And the person was certified by a very uh, uh, recognizable organization or firm or company. I don't know what you would call it. And they go around training and certifying people for a very long time, perhaps more than 15 or 20 years. And, and most of us would. We're getting very specific now. So let's let, let's uh, let's move on. You know, keep keep speaking. But you don't have to you know, you have to totally. And he, that picture. he clearly knew, did not know what condition was. So condition, it comes from the ICRC, from the 520 Professional Remediation Standard. So what happened in the original document, they created this thing called condition one, two, and three. And condition three is the state of mold growth. Condition three is that the stuff you can see, the visible, obvious mold growth on a surface. Uh, had nothing to do with being concealed or not. It's just, if you find a component, what is on it, it's mold growth, that's condition three. Condition one is what they labeled and still remains labeled normal fungal ecology. In other words, what's typical in a healthy, safe, non-damaged building? You might find non-complaint building. You know, not even don't use the term healthy, right? Because you don't know. But I mean, you know, a typical it, building, a non-complaint, a non what you wouldn't classify as a moldy building. It's not a moldy building. It doesn't suffer from some sort of, you know, chronic or repeated or severe water damage where there's likely to be growth. So that, that building that everyone's confident is in decent shape, right? You might find a little mold growing on a, some grout in a shower that somebody missed with the common cleanser and the brush, right? Um, but it's, 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 it's expected to be normal. And then condition two, which is in the middle, is a contaminated state but it is contaminated with the debris of the mold, the spores and the fragments and other debris from the mold growth. It is what I now call the invisible condition. And the reason I focus on that word is because we so often say, you can assess by and verify 
or do clearance by the visible dirt, dust, debris, and growth, right? So we walk into a building to do clearance and we look around and say, hey, I can't see any growth on these components. I can't see any dirt, dust, and debris on the ground. So that's the visible condition. Condition two, because it's spores and fragments of the filaments. Right, it's microscopic debris potentially. It's really small stuff, mm -hmm. right? It turns out this stuff is invisible. You need a microscope to see it. Mm -hmm. So it is separate from the growth. It is what's next to the growth, down the hall from, on the other floor from. Nobody has a good definition for what is acceptable. In other words, and no one has a good definition or method to determine, did that stuff come from the growth on the wall? And by definition from the S520, condition two is from the condition three that is being remediated. So if I have, you know, mold. Is it though? Yes. Could have been pre-existing. No. No, condition is from the mold growth in the building that is identified for the remediation. How do you prove that? How do you, yeah, that, that, that's a tough now, one. You may identify it in the future for remediation, right? You may go, why do I have so many spores on this table? And then you look to the left because you've been working over on the east wing. You look to the west wing, you go, oh, darn, we missed some mold growth there. But the point is it's connected to the mold growth in that building. It's not what blew in from the uh, mulch outdoors. How do you know that? Well, I mean, based on what it, what the flora, or I mean, what it is, but okay, all right, keep going. Right, that's the purpose. Because what's what Think about the logic. What would be the purpose of taking occupant protections and, and workplace controls to prevent cross contamination? I'm not preventing cross contamination from mulch outdoors. I'm preventing cross contamination from the mold on the ceiling in the in the hallway that I'm remediating. And then if I'm remediating that, where does my cross-contamination begin or end? Right? It's, uh, uh, because we don't know, is it 100 spores, 1,000 spores, or bazillion spores per cubic inch? That is a hazard. We don't know. So well, and also what, what, what organism, you know, I mean, if that matters. You know, I, mean, I don't know if we know if that matters necessarily. Right. But so now you're looking for something invisible and people want to say, oh, well, it's whatever debris, whatever uh, con condition to is the, the contamination adjacent to the remediated space. Well, how far is adjacent? One foot? Is it a hallway? Is it a hospital room? Or is it all the way That's down to the it. end by the elevator? Ten hospital rooms away or ten offices away or three bedrooms away. Right. We don't know where to draw that line. I got to let Pat chime in because I that's chomping. I mean, he's got the Aurora Borealis behind him, you know, not coincidentally because he's from Alaska, but go for it. You don't. So what Scott, I guess what you're saying is if you're going to use the term condition two, you have to have a condition three first. You can't yes. have condition two without condition three in the building, in the building. So you're presuming that the condition two is from the condition three. So therefore you're going to clean it all up. You're going to remove the condition three. You're going to clean up the condition two. If it meets the qualifications of what a condition two is, a condition two has to affect something in the building, right? So if it's contamination, because by definition, contamination affects aesthetics, utility, or health. So now how many spores does it affect? How many spores does it take to jam up the gears of a machine? How many spores does it take to jam up the electronics of a computer, right? How many spores does it take to affect the appearance of, of the carpet? How many spores does it take to impact the health of the, of the occupants? Otherwise it's not contamination. Contamination is something unwanted that's causing a negative effect. It just how many? happened to be spores. How many? 
I don't know. That's not for me to determine. <laughs> no. Okay. All right. I am just defining it because now I'm going to ask you, Mr. Remediator, Mr. Assessor, Mr. Recommender. <laughs> Mr. Recommender. The decider in chief. How many spores? Right. You're going to go out there. You're going to find condition two. You're going to redline it, so to speak. It starts here. It ends here. And you're going to tell somebody to clean it up and you're going to tell them how good to clean it up. All I'm doing is defining it to make sure you're, you justify what you're recommending. So if you justify 100 spores per, per square inch, go right ahead. But I'm going to tell if the building, if I'm representing the building, I'm going to say, well, you better justify 100 spores. How do I know? How do I? Why do I have to spend that much money to clean to 100 if a million is OK or a thousand or whatever number? Okay. I don't care what number it is. Justify it but justified based on the definition. So if you don't have any visible mold in a building, but you have occupant complaints and you have a visibly dirty environment, built, you know, dusty, dirty environment, is that a condition too? No, because that's a, that's a, that's an agglomeration of many types of, of dirt, right? I don't know what's in that dirt. I, I'm going to bet you though, by mass fraction, mold is going to be one of the smallest fractions within that dirt. Which you would presume that would be normal. What if you sampled that dirt and it was mostly mold? Then do you have condition? Or a high, or let's say a high, not even mostly, Pat, but just say just a, you know, high than a fragment concentration, you know, pretty good percentage. Things that likely shouldn't be there. It's it's. What's the effect on the building of that, right? If if, if you give me a gram of that dust, human complaint. It's a little cute, right? The size of a dice. Mm -hmm. If I start to break that up, the visual, the vast visual of that, I'm still going to have invisible mold. No matter what, I'm never going to have enough mold fragments and spores to become visible. So mm -hmm. that mold is still not impacting the aesthetics. I'm never going to have enough spores and fragments in there to affect the function or utility of any mechanical or electronic devices in that building. You know, so now we're down to, is it just a fraction? And I don't mean a fraction like one one hundredth. I mean, a piece of the puzzle could be one third, right? Any fraction. What fraction of the dust is it, and how do you know it's affecting the health? Yeah, well, but that's another... that's <laughs> tough because none. Of, we're, we're talking environmental sampling, and then in, in the same sentence, you, you talk about affecting the health, but we we don't have that correlation, the dose dose effect. We don't have that right. for any of it. Then why anywhere in this freaking industry? We, how many spores per cubic meter make you sick? I don't know. Because then why are you cleaning it? Then how can you justify because cleaning we're, we're, there's or make, a thousand or a million? They're making a, there's a leap of faith, and, so, and there's a lot of um, circumstantial stuff around this, you know, that you know to, to say what the number should be. There's a, there's no there's no agreed upon number that's pass or fail for mold mold deposition in a space. Right. So why not just yeah. make it visible? Why not just make it like a normal housekeeping and say just make it visibly free of dirt, dust, and debris? Pat's example is great. This dirty place you in a building the offices the hallways have this layer of dirt and dust because they've been oh they've been shut down for COVID for 15 months make it visibly don't worry about counting the mold don't sample the mold just make it free of visible dirt dust and debris and that fraction of mold will go along with that dirt it'll disappear when you vacuum and you wipe and you swiffer and you wash and you mop all right whatever your housekeeping is and, and that's the and the mold in that condition too would be defined as mold that were to let's say take a tape lift you wouldn't see uh, evidence of actual active growth on that, right? It would just sure. be settled random stuff all mixed up as opposed to you've got a high full, you know, a whole mycelia 
pattern where you can see that something's actually growing on that surface microscopically. Right. Or that would yeah, be that would yeah, still right. even if it was right. microscopic and you couldn't see it would still be it would still be a condition three. Right. And, and that's, you know, how many of us have actually gone out of our way to try to see if if two inches from the visible growth actually had any microscopic growth on it. Right. That's that's I've done that many common. times. And it usually does. Yeah. You know, the part that you clear with your flashlight is usually not clear. <laughs> so if you go into a building that has history of microbial growth, visible microbial growth that might have been removed in a manner that, um, wasn't it's not a recognized practice or something like that and but you can't see it anymore that's still a condition too if you have that dust debris or whatever present because there what there's a history but how would you ever know that that came from that mold you you, you don't you you just have to it, it's a whole bunch of assuming because it's all we got so, so if you have i like the example I, we've pat and i have discussed this for several years now back and forth intermittently right we, we come up with little ideas and we throw them at each other and see what sticks so the concept then is hey we had a remediation in this office or this school or library or police station or something and a month goes by or three months goes by and pat gets a phone call to investigate because somebody's got the same symptom as they had before when there was water damage and mold growth and he shows up and he goes into the area that was told to him was remediated and he sees something. Well, that's visible to Justin or breathe. Someone didn't do their job right versus is it invisible, right? And I think that's where the jam is right there. With regard to sampling, you know, there's no, and you said it, you both use the word assume, right? So who's assuming that this stuff or this area, this one foot, three foot or 30 feet away from the mold growth is conditioned to. So you really only have, you only have two ways to do it. You assume it and you just say, well, I'm going to clean five feet out from the mold because I think that's where most of it falls. Or I'm going to clean five offices down the hallway because I assume, or like some people say the, the lungs of the building were turned on, the HVAC was blown and the whole darn high rise needs to be cleaned because there's mold spores from the basement mold throughout the whole office. I don't know, but you're making the assumption. All I ask is you better justify that assumption. You better come up with something that justifies you recommending to the owner that they spend that much time, effort, and money and resources cleaning that far of a condition too. So it's, you assume it, or you call an assessor, an IEP, an hygienist, industrial hygienist, you tell them, hey, go figure out where condition two is. And now, like you said, what are my references? How do I know? And how do I correlate this stuff in the dust on the floor to the stuff on the ceiling tiles in the hallway where the pipes were dripping? But moreover, how do you, how, but moreover, Scott, how do you make the determination if you're that professional, what potentially could ad, have adverse health outcomes when we, we don't actually have, there's not a table, you know, that you look at or a chart. Most, or most it's, it's a judgment people, call. Is it not completely? That's a great, right. That's a good question. I believe, I don't believe what I have learned is that almost all studies that indicate health effects from water damage and mold growth. And we're gonna use, I use those terms coincidentally, they always appear together, so to speak. One, it might be dry, but it's still water damage. Is that once the visible water damage and visible and associated mold growth and associated visible dirt, dust and debris is gone, we don't have it, it, 
excess incidence of health effects. So once you remove that condition three, that is almost always sufficient to not find any more correlation of health effects. So we're almost all, all of the, at the initial studies, look at what's actually there in the health. And yes, if there's water damage and mold growth, you have health effects. No water damage and no mold growth, can't pin the health effects on it. So it becomes who cares what's conditioned, who cares what's invisible. Just give me visibly free of dirt, dust, and debris, like your housekeeping. Everything else is thrown up in the air, whether it's like you said, where's the study that says, is it mycotoxins, is it, is it glucans, you know, the cell wall components, is mm -hmm. it spores, is it allergens, what's triggering it? You know, this. Or is it all of the above? I mean, I, I, I think one of the problems that we all have in this industry, uh, you know, from the professional side is we're still making a lot of leaps of faith and we're, you know, there's a lot of stuff we're not sure about, right? A lot of it's anecdotal. You know, we do this and, you know, like our experience says that when we do this, most people don't complain. So, you know, so, okay, well, so from, an, you know, I mean, it, is there science behind that? Well, you know, kind of loose science, right? But I mean, we're, we're basically, we're, you know, we're doing, you know, us as professionals, like we know in our experience, we've done these things. And at the end, the occupants have not had complaints. So, okay, so this is, right. I, I base my opinion on how to handle this based on what's worked, what I believe has worked for us in the past, based on our experience. Which right. is and great. then we have a group experience, right? Pat's experience, your experience, my experience. Right. And you can't, I can't use my sampling, my methods, my years of doing it the same way and compare it to Scott's sampling, Scott's methods, Scott's ways of doing it for years as a direct comparison. Oh, you're talking numerically. Well, yeah, like yeah, yeah I guess you're using people. if somebody uses semi-aggressive versus totally quiescent, right? It doesn't disturb anything. The numbers aren't going to match which, up. Which is why I think you will never see like a document come out that says that 100 spores of this is good, 100 or you know 101 spores is bad because you can't have that because of all of the variables. Um, but like if you put in, if I put an EPA document there and an AIHA document there and an ACDH document there, and if I could overlap those things. The, the phrases are almost identical through all of them when they talk about like sampling, since this is a sampling conversation. But like the, Bob and I talked about this earlier, I'm looking at one of them right here right now and the title of the document ends in a consumer focus, consumer focus. There are professionals that use these documents as their guides, but the documents are all consumer documents. So I think that in the sampling industry, there's a lot of bad press, if you will, because people use the wrong information, not realizing what that information is focused on. And I, like we spoke earlier, when they say no sampling, what kind of sampling are they talking about? Are they talking about the little settle plate? Are they talking about the spore trap? Are they talking about you know agar plates? I mean, what, what are they talking about when they talk about sampling? They never tell you in these documents what kind of sampling they're talking about. They just say no sampling, not necessary. Well, New York State says that. New York State Department of Labor, who, who administers the New York State uh, Mold Licensing Program, sampling is not necessary. So and, are they and they, they just say that carte blanche. You know, that's are, like. Are they saying don't go down to the hardware store and buy that kit? Or are they saying don't hire an industry professional who has experience in sampling that had, can develop a plan? I can't speak for them, but I believe that their intent is don't hire the people that are going to charge you a bunch of money to come in and take some samples that don't mean all that much. Just clean up the problem. I'm just saying that's that's what I believe the intent is, at least 
on our state level here. What if you sample an environment that's going to be remediated? You go in and you do a specific sampling plan and you do them samples right before the remediation. You let the remediation take place and then you come in and you do exactly that same thing all over again. And you compare those two directly together. And they're both snapshots in times. Mother Nature's probably changed outside. There's lots of other little things. But let's say the initial sampling looked comparable to what you like to compare it to. Your data review says that this doesn't look all that bad. But the second set of samples are blown to smithereens. You got millions of spores per cubic meter or something like that. Is that not useful to say that the remediation was unsuccessful? Scott? <laughs> I'm going to let you weigh in. Now, see, now you suddenly choose to filter yourself. <laughs> Look at that. It's like. Now, now back up a little bit. I'm, I'm, it's a rhetorical question. I want Pat to answer for himself because he answered that a while ago. And so did you. You said, we have nothing that informs us. We don't, we have nothing that informs us that, that say, the sampling that he did. We have nothing that informs us that a million spores, 100,000 is bad. Oh. Other than our anecdotal experience, because, you know, there there is a correlation. We probably all agree that when we go in, let's say, for example, I'm going to go with the spore trap just because we've been talking spore trap, you know, and we get counts, you know, in the tens of thousands or approaching the 100,000 counts per cubic meter. Um, people tend to have issues in those spaces. You know, I mean, those are pretty high numbers. You, know, you start getting up in those, you know, six digit numbers. Yeah. And, and like my lab can produce me the averages of 17 years worth of my sampling for any zip code that I've sampled in. And I can look at those averages and say, well, here's what's normal for this area on spore counts outside. I can also look at the inside averages and say, you know, yeah, this might be normal, but that's kind of a skewed data because some of those houses might have really high counts because there's mold everywhere and other houses might be really, really clean because they have, you know, daily mate service or something like that. You can't really use that inside data. But the outside data is mother nature. And that's what we typically start a data review with is what does inside and outside look like? So unfortunately, and, and, and I've had these conversations with both of you, unfortunately, my, my uh, thing about that is there's too many people, and Bob said pump jockeys, but there's too many people that stop right there. And that's their extent of sampling and data review, inside to outside, done, here customer, here's your results. And we have an audience question too, but I'll let you finish this thought. Well, no, I mean, and, and I think that's one of the, one of the bad names on sampling is that that's, that's the end of the process. And then um, there's no conclusion drawn by anybody. It's, it's, it's a set of samples with a comparison inside and out and everybody's done, but there's so much more to it than that. There's, there's so much more, especially in the data review part. And again, sampling should only be done once all of the investigation is complete and you can justify the fact that you want to use some sample data to back up your already con your conclusion that you already have. You're using a sample of data to help your conclusion, um, but you got to have that experience, I guess. I don't, well, I don't you, know. that's the, my concern, and I was Scott and I had it in pre-show, and you and I spoke at the community meetup earlier, uh, to, uh, Pat. Um, is that there, there are, there's a faction of the industry, you know, people in the industry, and I'm not going to single out one group of people who go out and do sampling in, in the field, but, you know, that 
live and die by what they get on their report of taking some spore traps. And again, they typically take spore traps. They don't even do surface stuff. They typically do some spore traps. And, you know, and what comes back is, oh, pass or fail. And, and they make their entire hypothesis of what's going on in the space based off of a limited number of air samples. You know, and, and they don't necessarily like dig any deeper that like that. If that's your first line of thought to pull the samples and see what that means, you're doing something wrong in my opinion. So what is the percentage of mold assessors that are doing that? I think it's the majority. Yeah, I know, but it's horrible. If you're not going in and doing, doing a visual, first of all, interview with the occupants. Hello, get the historical data <laughs> the in the space. The For God's sakes, try to find, yeah, try to find out the history building. Has there, was there a fire in the building seven years ago that had the fire department do- drop 200,000 gallons of water in it? You know, these are these are things that are kind of germane to what might be going on in the interstitial spaces that you can't see visually when you first walk in or any almost anywhere, too. Right. I mean, it's it's a horrible state of affairs, right, that we have these people coming in doing two, three samples and and making decisions on it. They've never done the interview that. Right. I I do four things. The inspection. I do the building history. I do what I call the functional medicine uh, of the building. It's the holistic approach. Is the building working the way it was intended? Mm -hmm. Right. Or did something screw it up? Somebody put in something backwards or upside down or faulty. And then the, uh, the occupant, what I call the health review, because this is specifically for my, my clients who are patients, you know, for environmental illness or suspect mold illness. You know, so I go through the occupant interview for symptoms and, and diagnoses and things. And the fifth thing, you know, doesn't, is not included. The fifth thing is sampling. I do not price sampling in my assessment. That comes way later. 90% of my health assessments, I find, and the people that I've taught find the problems without a single sample. We don't need samples to go find the water damage and the mold, even when it's concealed. You know, the, the fear of every client is, well, what if it's hidden behind the paneling? Well, if we do our first job right, 90% of the time, a, I don't need a sample. I'm going to be able to predict with really high confidence, 95, 98% confidence that there's something behind, concealed behind something somewhere. Or I need to go, you know, get a HVAC contractor to open up the, the, the to see the coils or something, you know. So we do have that going for us. But the the mold industry, the mold testing sampling industry, doesn't want to listen to that at all. Yeah, yeah. No, all. We're on the same page with that. I mean, I, you know, I've been a consultant for what I don't know, thirty four or five years now, and and I, same thing with clients. Like I I don't quote sampling in our proposal. I quote what we charge per sample in the event. When we're there with what we see, you know, what, you know, what we could do. And it's, and I always say this is something we will discuss with you on site when, when we get out there and actually physically see what we got there. Does it make sense or not? So here's, here's what you do, or, and I'm sure not you, but in general, the industry, once you decide what samples you want to take, I always tell people that all sampling must in increase but must increase the power of our decision making so a lot of people say oh you have to form a hypothesis or you have to follow the scientific method well you're you're doing that you're going to you're you're doing a a shortened version of that right you're doing hypothesis light sampling is not at all the scientific method that scientific method is reserved for discovery and confirmation of 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 theories the to, to explain the unit the material universe what we're doing is we're confirming or we're providing an answer. So say, hey, for Pat, right? His example was, did the, his question really was, when he gave us that great scenario on sampling, did the contractor disturb the mold and leave behind some excess contamination in the air? And he goes in and he says, oh my gosh, there's 100,000 spores in the air. The contractor didn't clean the air back to normal or condition one air 
concentrations from old sports. That's really what he's, the question he's using that sample to answer, right? So if we don't have a good question and a good answer, most of your questions you can answer ahead of time. You, you can predict, we, at least, we can predict what, what the results will be. So why waste it? La I just reviewed two, three days ago at the report. They said, oh, the basement has a lot of uh, uh, mold spores in the air. And then, then the client, and I had the mold testers report. It didn't describe anything about the basement. And then the owner tells me, oh, yeah, he found all this yellow mold underneath the, the wooden steps in the basement. And I go, why the hell did he sample? We knew it was going to be elevated. You have active growth in a damp, you know, a cavity under the stairs so it was a waste that he didn't he didn't enhance the power of her decision making at all you know her decision was do i do i need to clean remediate something in my basement or not the answer was absolutely you have visible yellow mold on all this wood so it didn't help mm -hmm. anything yeah. right yeah. was that air that's what we don't do is we don't and that's where the justification comes in so pat's very good at laying out his 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 uh, process because he uses a lot of things that justify the sampling, but he also uses the sampling the other direction to justify the decision making. And I'm not I'm not approaching it as a health. I don't talk about health to these people. This this has nothing to do with health. I'm using sampling to help me give an idea if something worked or made it worse, if you will. I hope that makes sense. Um, but like your scenario with the basement, was there enough? In, in a professional opinion with a data review, was there enough airborne spores to justify cleaning that whole basement or should you just contain the closet under the stairs and just remove the mold under the stairs? Wouldn't the sample not be helping you in making that decision? Or are you just gonna clean the whole place because there's mold? Well, surface sampling might help and air sample is not gonna help make that call. Yeah, the, 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 yeah the, the air sample doesn't tell me about the rest of that basement or the yeah, content. You're going to like surface level now, now which makes more sense. Anyway. Hey, I, I want to give Terry has a question. He's been waiting patiently to ask it. So I'm going to let Terry uh, ask your question. You have to unmute, though. You're still muted. There you go. Actually, this is such a great and interesting discussion. I, I don't want to ask my question. Um, <laughs> um, well, there you go. We made you wait too long. I, I get it. No, 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 not at all. Sincerely, uh, great discussion and, and great issues. Uh, but some of what Scott has said has really stimulated uh, dozens of questions uh, uh, in my mind. Um, and I'm certainly going to renew my IICRC uh, um, subscription so that I can uh, see this draft uh, that's coming out. Uh, uh, but some of the things you said about condition two and condition three just blow my mind, uh, Scott. Um, uh, you know, you, you all know I don't have industrial hygiene credentials, uh, professional credentials, uh, but I'm well informed on a lot of issues uh, from reading research reports and so forth. And um, Scott, questions like, uh, if I understood you correctly, you said, uh, uh, condition three is defined as being able to visibly see mold on surfaces. Um, and if I understood correctly, you said condition two um, derives only from a poor job at remediating condition three. Okay. No, that's no, the second, the first is correct with the caveat. It, 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 you have to look into the concealed spaces. So you also, it doesn't, 
Remember the old argument against New York City, right? Was, oh my God, it says visible walls. You look in the room, nobody ever cut open wall. Well, right. actually New York City in paragraph section 2B said, you must consider what's concealed, right? It didn't ignore, it said, you still need to do your history and your evaluation to see, is there water damage in a cavity? Open it up and is there visible mold in that cavity? And that was the, that was the great lie <laughs> of the people who didn't wanna use New York City because they never got to section two and read the caveat that Christiandra made sure was in there, right? They also he said spray water it. though to stop spore distribution. What? No, no, I'll let it go. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Keep so, going. Exactly. So, so that was the huge. That was a great lie of of New York City, right? New Chris York has City got a hit on me again for for once again, you know, saying something about the New York City guide. But right now, so when we say visible, I mean, what is on that component, right? It's been it, there's there's sufficient evidence to say it's been wet. It's wetted. It is concurrently wet. There is visible growth. Something's going on with it, and. Condition two is not from the remediation. Condition two is from the condition three, the visible mold growth. Like okay. the stuff that you find in the building cross-contaminated other surfaces, other components. So yes, for example, at the time of sporulation, you might be able to say that the air near the growth that's sporulating has excess spores in it. And that is not normal. You know, that's not condition one. That's nor not normal fungal ecology there's too many spores from that mold on the wall also though but right to clarify condition three does not always have to be totally visible either does it it just has to be act active growth correct there can condition two, condition one actually accounts condition three i'm talking about now yeah right but i mean if you have if you if you take a tape lift you can see active growth on the surface but to the naked eye you don't see it isn't that still condition three that's the that's the monkey wrench and all this. Yeah, I mean, one because or shouldn't it be? I guess is the better for, question. Right? right. Condition one allows for um, kind of I forget the, the exact word the, the ambient growth. So what just naturally might occur, you might have small microscopic growth in a condition one normal condition. Right. That the um, there is no good line other than visible at beyond you know the visible condition three. How far do you keep Sam? Like you said, you you. You take a lot of samples left and right of that line and you discover, hey, three inches out, there's always invisible growth three inches out and there's never invisible growth, you know, 24, whatever numbers, yeah. you know, seem to match. Um, you know, that's gets kind of like a sticky wicket, so to speak, you know, no, because yeah, it's an issue if you if you if you sidestep that and you only go for what's visible, you, you could be leaving a lot of stuff there that's going to bloom into something more. So doesn't that then force, I see Perry's, but doesn't that then force the person doing the inspection and preliminary determination under S520, shouldn't they be then calling in uh, the IEP, the hygienist, the specialist to sample and, and discern the lines for condition three, the lines for condition two? The S520 states two feet, correct? Two feet from the outer perimeter of visual? No, it uses that as, a, as an example. It doesn't say okay. you must. There is no sh there is no should do something to. But it does again. it does state that right, and and that's so. I mean, it, it's still it's not saying that's a, that's a must or a requirement. But it, and I, you hear that all the time. People always say a two foot margin, right? Or two foot. You know, that, that's common. I'm not allowed to say, but I think I know from the revision because that's an old. That's a. Okay. That's a remnant of the reference guide when the reference guide existed and it was copied into the standard. It was a reference guide. 
You're right. It was. Yeah, it was. It's a, it is in the reference. Yeah. Guide. So we so have to. Be we have that's to not be the, if we're talking standards. You're right. The reference guide is a separate, and that's not ANSI approved. That's a whole different. Yeah, it's just a, the support. It's just it's yeah. like a teaching doctor. The reference it's like is a teaching doctor. it's like sample supporting your decision. It's a reference guide supporting the S520. Um, so back to Terry's question though. You in, in my mind, you can get condition two from a botched remediation. That condition two may not have existed prior to the remediation. You got the happy mold on the wall that's not doing anything other than growing and sitting there. Well, you know, it's got water, food, and a whole shebang. And then the remediator just comes in, rips, snorts, tears, and puts it everywhere. Now you do have condition two, and that did come from the remediation. Right. Yes. Which is where yes. you get failures after the fact. And another thing about sampling not that this is right or wrong or a way, a proper way to use it. I, I would say there are some remediators out there that, that I know of that if they know there's no sampling, no IEP, IH, whatever involved in their job, they're done in three, they're done in and out three days. If they know an IEP, IH or whatever is involved on their job, five, six, seven days before they're off that site, because they know somebody's going to come back and hold them to what they did. So sampling is something, if you mention that word to a remediator, it seems to push them into, sometimes, not, not all remediators are like this, but it seems to push them into a, a more thorough job, I, I would have to say, um, which is not right. It, it's not right. It shouldn't be like that. Every job should be exactly the same, no matter who's overseeing it or whether there's you know third-party confirmation or any of that kind of a thing. But uh, you can but make I, the argument I, that every surgery should be the same, and every auto mechanic should do a great job too. I mean, the, the pro, I, and I'm not I'm not saying it's a issue here. It, it's the problem is is in this industry it seems to be even a little bit more flagrant. I'm going to quote yeah. I, earlier. I quoted uh, Phil Maury, and I'm going to quote somebody else. So I was in a 520 committee, and I went up to the chair, and the chair at the time was Bob Baker, ah. and I mentioned to him what I had experienced. And I said, you know, 100% of all mold remediations that I have ever walked on to do clearance, and I may have been involved from the very beginning, from the middle, or I never even knew what was going on. I just walked in. 100% of them, I failed without a single sample. 100% failed the visual clearance. 100%. So what Pat is saying is, is somewhat correct, but why do we bother taking samples? Why don't you just tell them you're going to do a visual clearance. Now, Bob's response to me, Mr. Baker responded, so Scott, so we shouldn't be writing a standard on how to do mold remediation. We should be writing a quality control standard. And one of our fellow members, Pat, you know, Tom Flood, he agrees. We should be writing quality control. What is a good remediation? Sampling should not be the, the, the primary way of determining if you did a good job. Just go out and see if they got the visual done, right? Do a white glove, white cloth, do well, a black glove. But that is first level. I mean, any, any you know, uh, person that knows what they're doing as a consultant industry, I mean, the first tier, I mean, if they're just going in and just pulling some spore traps or, you know, some form of air sample and that's how they clear a job and they don't even look around, that's insanity. It is insanity, but that, but there's a, it's got, it's got to look, it's got to be aesthetically clean. I mean, way before S520 existed, we were doing that 30 years ago. It's like, if it's dirty, you fail. How did we start this conversation one hour ago? We said, oh my God, the stuff we learned in 1984, 1988 is still existing. And it all goes down to, did you do a darn good job? And that's really what Pat's saying too. He's just found a way to, to, 
to use that sampling. I found a way to use visual. I walk in and I find the dirt and debris or growth every time. And, and, and real LED life. flashlight will find a lot of things. Well, you just got nowhere to look. I mean, look on top of doors. Mm-hmm. Well, the worst. The top I of the door. People don't clean that ever. <laughs> like, duh. Why is it the door frame? 40 to 60% of all jobs that I have where someone else has been paid to do the assessment for mold or to do the remediation. And that client has already been told, hey, you're all good. They, we, there is either, there's no more mold. 40 to 60% that changes in, in, with the year. But I, don't, I can find significant mold growth and water damage in 40% or more of those jobs without a flashlight in a standing position. So I don't even have to look in the crawl space. Well, because you're looking. Right, LED. You're looking. There's a, we we're gonna we're at a point where we have to get into the wrap, but yeah, because there's different there's different motivations here, right? I mean, there's there's, there's no motivations problem. to pass and move it forward, and there you know, and then there's true people that are actually independently going out and saying whether the job was properly done, right. and they're not always uh, you know both happening. And then we and then now I'm gonna wrap this up, and then now is the people who are going out there and sampling just egregiously oversampling and convincing people that they know what they're doing when they just sample and I saw Terry use the word endotoxins, right? And by the way, endotoxins are from bacteria, not from mold. So we want to make sure we don't conflate those unless we're talking Absolutely. about Yeah, but m- microbial, you know, I, and I think you do need to conflate a little because how often is there just mold in a damp indoor environment? You're right, usually dealing with bacterium as well. Endotoxins are even worse to sample for. Mycotoxins are worse to sample because we have even less information on what their what their typical uh, 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 characteristics. Yeah, be, yeah. What's their typical concentration, and we even have less information than that for what is the relationship to health, right? So every time we go to the one of these kind of what I would call these kind of esoteric. Uh, constituents that we want to sample for, we have less and less and less information. And we're approaching demanding a clean room status. We're approaching, a lot of these people are demanding zero tolerance, right? Which is absurd because we don't even know how to, how to approach zero tolerance. We don't even know if it's bad. And so this is the egregious part. These are the people who come in and say, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll bring in a, an assessor. And then when they leave, they have $10,000 worth of sampling for this homeowner right and the homeowner is pressured like a used car salesman pressures you into buy the undercoating they feel embarrassed because this guy's been presented to them as the guru of all things you know environmental health and and mold and it's it's a sham when we should be focusing right now what is visible let if we all agreed make it as clean as you possibly can just visibly clean everywhere go to white glove black glove tests go to cloth testing to find that area, forget about the, the lungs of the house using an HVAC to blow spores of the third floor bedroom upstairs. Come on, that's not conditioned. There's, there's no one that's ever shown the mold in the basement contaminated sufficiently, the third room, the bedroom on the third floor, that it, does, that it needed to be uh, remediated. There's, there's not a it piece could. of it. It mean, depends on the levels you're talking about. Again, if you got 100,000 spores per cubic meter flying around and it's active growth all over a basement and your forced air system, I would argue that potentially it is getting up there. There, there seems to be some logic to that, right? There, that's that's intuitively well, correct, but it is, but it's. Well, numerically, we've proven it correct. I mean, I can tell you hundreds of times that I've, you know, seen extremely high levels in a basement and with forest air systems and other levels of the house, seeing progressively, you know, they're progressively less as you get up to the upper but tier, but the, the second floor is much higher. 
you know. My my point is empirically, who cares? Empirically, uh, none of those levels yeah. way beyond that affected the house, right? They didn't affect the aesthetics, the utility, or the health of the occupants. Period. Period. That right? It, yeah, yeah. You, you could probably you could how, potentially air scrub. How, how do you know they didn't affect the health of the well, we of the know. occupant? I have no literature whatsoever. There's been tens of thousands of, of uh, research articles done for how many, for how long, and none of them yeah. repeat each other. There's none of them have been replicated, even if they start to show a hint of it, and none of them are conclusive. So they lead to a likelihood, but no one ever nails it down. We, we have well, a dearth of good information. Let, let me overstate the question in response. You mean you want to wait 50 years like we did on tobacco smoke uh, before it's conclusively proven? That's that's but, a that's a red herring argument because we knew No, it's not. Yes, it is because we knew tobacco smoke 50 years prior to that did what it did. It was hidden. It was known yeah. and hidden and it was known and argued against. We honestly do not know. This is a very open age, right? There's a lot of information out there. The problem is most of it's being distorted by people who don't have proper background to interpret the science. So what we have now is a lot of fear, a lot of overreaction, right? That the, 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 uh, the precautionary principle has been overextended beyond belief. So empirically, from our point of view, if we're there's people that would argue that, but okay. Right. If we're going to write a standard, we better have some good empirical data. We better have good, some good research. We, have good epidemiological we need more. We need more. But I mean, people would argue that there's been a, a serious intent by, you know, a particular national organization to, you know, to suppress information, you know, and, and isn't they shall a, go on. They shall go unnamed. And, 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 I, don't, fairly, and I don't buy it. Okay. But we've right. been around too long. We've been around too long. Isn't there a we have been incredible article out there? Um, I don't remember who wrote it, World Health or something like that, that talks about the mold industry and the suppression of science in comparison with the cigarette industry and the suppression of information on that, and that that, that does exist. So, so like what Terry was saying, there is information out there that suggests that there is the link between them but Scott is saying, you know, but there's no definitive proof, if you will. Mm -hmm. All we have is the suggestion of, we don't really have the, we don't have the suggestion that it does not. We have the suggestion that it does. And then we, so we have to, again, we're assuming that that is correct. Right. And, and, you know, and I think due diligence, you know, ne necessitates that you do, you know, you err on the side of safety as opposed to the side of, you know, necessarily finance. Uh, but, you know, certainly, I mean, so, you know, here we are, we're way over time. We're, we're going to have to pull a plug here, but as, as we did, you know, uh, the previous episode with this discussion, which, which beg, you know, begs the question, will there be a subjective science of mold sampling part three and uh, you know, or, or the new title because it's getting stale. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we don't have those answers, right? Because I, I would argue, I always, and I say this whenever I talk to a prospective client too, I, I've been doing this for 30 years. So I come in and go, and I say I'm Switzerland, which is not necessarily a great example, but you know, saying I'm in the middle here. I'm just, I'm, I'm seeking out information, trying to make decisions. And what we need to do is separate the anxiety and the hysteria and also the other side of the coin, right? Understanding being, you know, but erring on the side of, you know, the occupant safety, if we're going to err on the side, but, you know, understand that, you know, we're just going to, you know, we're just going to report what we find. You know, it's like, I, I let's, let's 
and I know, yeah, it's hard if, especially with a homeowner to try to detach from, you know, my home's been ruined and my children are sick. That That's easy for me to say as the consultant. Here's uh, the problem. Let me interrupt. Here's the problem. Okay. Okay. With, here's the problem with sampling with regard to what you just said, because you, everything you just said is, is correct, right? We, we want to remain neutral. We want to represent the facts. Here's the problem. They come to the table, whether, and it could be the, it could be the teachers. It could be the librarian. It could be the police officer, right. it could be the homeowner. I don't care who, whoever the constituents, the occupants. I mean, they they're, they're upset because they're, they're in it, you know, yeah, they went to Dr. Google and they found something or they saw some guy's YouTube channel in Washington. He told them how damn dangerous these things were. Right. So now they come to the table with this preconceived notion of what's going on. And we have to then, like you said, we have to talk them down from the, from the fear that they've been, that's been generated. That's very, very hard to do, right? So I think that's really part of it. And we have many people who are using samples to generate the fear. So they, they take the swab sample of a two by four in an attic for endotoxins. And they tell the guy that the reason you're sick is you have uh, endotoxins on a two by four in your attic and you have to spend 20,000 ducks to clean your attic. And the guy bought it. The guy thought yeah. that was correct because they, these people sounded so convincing. Well, Right. But there are. Yeah. I mean, and again, we're past time, but you're right, Scott. I mean, there's there's a lot of people in the industry that are using data and misrepresenting it to, you know, to drum up sales and, and use and use it as a weapon, weaponizing it against the consumer. Thank you for having me. The answer is why is their marketing more convincing than our marketing? We've been following. That's a damn good question. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the thing is, information needs to get out there. We, we, you know, more studies need to be done. You know, there has to be health based studies more. I mean, a lot of them to, un- to try to understand this correlation because there is there's some correlation there. But we don't you know, that, you know, will we ever find the dose response? Maybe not. But at least we should be seeking answers to those questions clearly going forward. So I'm going to cut you both off. Scott Armour, um, he is an environmental health science consultant. That's a hard, that's, that's a hard, that doesn't just roll off your tongue really comfortably uh, with, uh, with, hang on, with Armor Applied Science LLC in Cincinnati, Ohio. Cleveland. Cleveland. Damn it. I said Cincinnati on the intro too. Yeah, yes, I didn't write it down. Uh, with Cleveland, Ohio. Yeah, it's a big difference. And yeah, okay. Not the, not the same place. Uh, thanks to our guests, you know, Pat and Terry, thanks for jumping in. Uh, and, uh, you know, we appreciate your guys' input. It's fantastic. Um, so show's going to be recorded. Well, show is recorded. I shouldn't say going to be recorded. Show has been recorded and will be available both on healthyindoors.com, but most importantly, on the Healthy Indoors online global community. And, uh, you know, where is that, you might want to ask? Well, the Healthy Indoors, that's not the slide. I wanted. I wanted this slide. That's not it. That's not the right slide. Let me try. Oh, no, that's not. Oh, and then it all breaks down suddenly. You know, there. That's the slide we wanted. So, um, on you know, the Healthy Indoors uh, online global community, that's a place where we're we're actually are featuring the show. We're making it. Uh, it's all of our assets plus some other shows and other programs are available, even if you're not a member. So it's open to the general public, and that's where we really like to push you. Anything that's got the little orange triangle on the side is totally free and accessible. So even this show, like you know, you could. Uh, see what's going on here live show um so that's that's actually real important uh we still have our main uh homepage, healthyindoors.com uh which is where our magazine resides um the shows the podcasts events there's a bunch of resources there tons of documentation and articles uh but certainly we're gonna you know we're gonna still push the fact that you should hit if you go to healthyindoors.com hit that community button and Get yourself uh, a free membership to the community. This is really where everything's going to be happening going forward. Um, 
Now, with regards to that, um, we also um, want to uh, talk about this upcoming event in November, uh, the Healthy Buildings America 2021 uh, conference in Honolulu, Hawaii. It's uh, going to be going on November 9th through 11th. Um, this is a really interesting show because the ISIAC conferences, the Healthy Buildings uh, conference series, are typically academic. I mean, they're you know acad academic academia. Uh, you know, they're you know they're they're research oriented. That's that's what ISIAC's uh, uh, primary purpose is. But in this case, uh, with the host organization, uh, Siri, the, the uh, Cleaning uh, Industry uh, Research uh, Institute, they're actually, the topic here is bridging the gap between research and practice. And this is an opportunity for you, if you're a practitioner, to go out to make a trip to Hawaii, which is pretty cool, and uh, have the opportunity to interface with a bunch of world researchers so this is this is a really exciting event we're a, we're a platinum sponsor of the event we'll be there uh we're looking forward we'll probably actually do a healthy indoors live show from there too which will be interesting time zones will get all screwed up but yeah. wait does that mean you're flying me out there to do the show with you uh no but it, it means that um if you were on that episode we would hook you up this way through a zoom meeting and we would let you be virtually in hawaii <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay <laughs> Uh, yeah again yeah okay anyway thanks thanks to scott we're way over time those of you who are uh, sitting in there and watching this show uh either live or recorded uh thank you for uh being with us again this week this is an important topic we we've demonstrated again that this is a topic that you know we haven't had the answers to yet but at least we're keeping the discussion going and i think that's critically important so uh join us again next week uh same bad time same bad channel for the healthy indoors live show from 